This interview is recorded on March 1st, 2020. It is our pleasure to welcome Dr. Richard Shields to an interview with historians Dana Lott and Britta Smith. Dr. Shields is the Gary Soderberg Endowed Professor, Chair, and Executive Officer in the Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Sciences Department within the Carver College of Medicine at the University of Iowa. He began his education by earning a Bachelor of Science in Biology at Catawba College in 1976. This was followed by a certificate in physical therapy at the Mayo Clinic School of Health-Related Sciences in 1981. He then earned both a master's in 1985 and a PhD in 1992 in exercise physiology at the University of Iowa. Dr. Shields has had a prolific career in research with 133 publications and peer-reviewed journals. He has authored many scientific, scientific abstracts and has been a mentor to 19 PhD graduates and a host of doctoral students. Dr. Shields has been the recipient of multiple awards, including the Foundation for Physical Therapy Award for Service, the APTA Malley Award for Research Excellence, and the Mary McMillan Lecturer Award. He is also a recipient of the Catherine Worthingham Fellow Award of the American Physical Therapy Association. In 2021, Dr. Shields was the Anne Shumway Cook Lecturer on translation of research to clinical practice, recognition for his lifelong study, improving the understanding and quality of life for those with spinal cord injury. Welcome, Dr. Shields. Thank you. I look forward to the interview. Great. So why did you become a PT? Oh boy, that is a great question. Um, you know, unlike what happens today where students often spend hours and hours observing and, and so forth, you know, I was really interested in either going into medicine, going into microbiology, or um, obviously I had been active in a lot of athletics and so forth, and I had my share of injuries. But it was honestly, it was a event that happened when I was about 13 years old, when um, we were, you know, I was from the state of New Jersey and we were diving out of a tree into a creek. And, um, and it was at night and a young friend of mine went first and he hit a piece of wood. Uh, floating down that, that he didn't see. And, and I got to observe firsthand um, someone sustaining a spinal cord injury. And, you know, that didn't, I, I wouldn't say that at that point I said, oh, I'm going to be a PT. But I did, it stayed with me forever. And so, you know, when I finished my bachelor's work, I looked at curriculums and Mayo Clinic, I really liked their curriculum. So that guided me there. So I went to PT school and I never set foot in a PT clinic before. And that's very unlike today where, where people get, a, you know, incredible observation hours. So that's really how it happened. I just fell in love with the, the, the physiology of the human body 
and its application to people with pathology. So that started my journey. Dr. Shields, that's kind of a nice, oh. Dana, you're on mute. I am. Uh, that's kind of a nice segue into the next question. So you started researching questions early in your career. Was there a particular patient or event that prompted your clinical questioning? Yeah, and you know, I, um, at, at Mayo Clinic, you know, they have a large spinal cord injury center there and a lot of physiatrists or uh, physiatrists uh, who, you know, we would do evaluations and they would review us and so forth. When I went to Iowa, there was no um, physical medicine department in the College of Medicine, and there still isn't today. The physical therapy department, academic department, was kind of holding up that that side of the equation. So, you know, what I learned is, you know, primary service for people with spinal cord injury was neurosurgery, but we were a consult. And if they didn't do surgery, everything that happened with that client from that point forward was our management. And so, you know, I really enjoyed that opportunity to, you know, I would get x-rays, I would get you know, various things before we sat them, I would make the decision when to sit, how long to keep them. Um, and so it was spinal cord injury that really captured my attention. And obviously from my earlier comments, you know, I had an underlying interest in that area anyway, but I was really interested in the physiology of what happens when you have a spinal cord injury and can we improve that physiology in, in people after that injury. So that's kind of, yeah, it was definitely individuals who have had a spinal cord injury was the focus of, of my work early on. So a lot of your early work was in the properties of muscle fatigue. So what do you mean by that? Because I don't think in a spinal cord of fatigue being an issue, rather just activation at all. Yeah. So it's a good question. You know, what, what happened was um, I was in, engrossed with the, the sciences. And so reading papers in the area of what happens to muscle in animal models when they cut their spinal cord became very interesting to me because when you cut the spinal cord, a misnomer is that the, the muscle does not have any nerves to it. But the truth of the matter is when you cut the spinal cord below the level of that injury, all the peripheral nerves are attached to the muscle. And so I read a paper and it was in the 1980, it was published in nature and it was by a very prolific scientist, even today, Reggie Edgerton. And he had published that you, when they cut the spinal cord of a cat and they waited at 12 months, they looked at the muscle and it didn't lose its uh, fatigue properties. In other words, his, his point was that, you know, skeletal muscle that you're born with that has a certain nerve to it, as long as it has that peripheral nerve, it will maintain its phenotype, even if you 
reduce activity by cutting the spinal cord. That was the very powerful paper that was published in Nature. And when I read that, I did, everything I knew about training and skeletal muscle, it just didn't make good sense to me. And so, but, you know, I was, I said, well, if that's true, then if I take an individual who's had a spinal cord injury for a year and I repetitively stimulate the soleus muscle, which is an oxidative muscle, then it should not fatigue. And I said, that would be just a remarkable thing to see. And, um, you know, when I did it, it fatigued it like one fast motor unit. I mean, it just collapsed and it was like, oh my gosh, this is not what was being portrayed in the animal model. And so, you know, when I talk about fatigue, you know, and what we know today, I mean, if we transition all the way to today, a muscle that maintains oxidative abilities is not resistant to insulin. It's, it's a healthy organ and we don't look at muscle and I didn't look at muscle back then as, oh, well, if you're not going to walk, you don't need it. Or it's just the way, it's just a, a force generator. It's actually a very powerful organ that 75% of all uh, carbohydrate that you eat is metabolized at the level of the skeletal muscle. So when I would be moving those limbs of an individual who's paralyzed, I kept thinking, he's 18, these organs are disappearing, and yet he's going to eat, he's got to have a healthy metabolism, and if they do lose that ability to sustain force or becomes highly fatigable, then in essence, you've lost the function of that organ. One of the major functions is to churn uh, energy, if you will, from food substrate. So that's why fatigue was much more meaningful because it was an index and it is today. It's a wonderful biomarker for health. I mean, if you look at elderly, um, the ability uh, for them to sustain activity repetitively is a wonderful biomarker for the prevention of chronic disease. So Back then, I had that notion that skeletal muscle is much more than just a force generator. When somebody's paralyzed in the 80s, it was more like, well, we're glad their muscles atrophying because it makes it easier to transfer. Hmm. And while that might be true, there's some other uh, physiological things that by losing that muscle tissue puts them at high risk for secondary complications. And they're 18 years old and they live a long life, but they suffer from a lot of other secondary events. So for, so my, I'm, I'm in the acute care setting and I know that um, a lot of this is, we're talking kind of chronic spinal cord injury. How could this translate into clinical practice in the acute setting? Yeah. So um, if you, if you um, think about it, what we did is, you know, you're right. We studied individuals who were chronically paralyzed and showed that their muscle became fatigued. 
But our control group in our very first work that was published in Journal Neurophysiology, uh, our control group was individuals who had only been paralyzed for two weeks or less. And that control group showed that they didn't fatigue. In other words, their muscle was still the way it was before their injury. And then what we did is I did a, a 12 year trial where we mapped out across time, when do these changes occur? And so the loss of that fatigue, that, that fatigability at about six months after the injury is about 50% there at 12 months, it's there. So, you know, they don't have to be chronic very long, you know, so we think of chronic and we think of five years, 10 years, but the window of opportunity, I always said, you know, I don't know if we should do this, but if we wanted to do something, we need to do it between the time of the injury and within 12 months, because that's when all the loss of endurance is happening. And what that really means is you're losing mitochondria of the cell. So as you lose mitochondria, we now know today that that's a very powerful way to produce things that are healthy in the endocrine system and so forth. So how, do, how could that translate? Well, we have people that, um, you know, if you think about it in ICU, they're getting people up, you know, right away. The Hopkins work has shown that, you know, if you mobilize people early or induce activity, they actually have a better outcome in the acute phase. Um, so what we need to think about is if, if these individuals are consuming meals or they're obviously getting some form of energy when they're in the acute phase, but they have a pretty much a flaccid paralysis early on, can we assist their metabolism by turning on that muscle that's paralyzed? Whereas we would typically only focus primarily on passively ranging those limbs, but not activating the muscles. So one clinical implication, and uh, we just published this actually in January in PTJ, um, that you know, we know the pathways that we can turn on by driving a muscle. And I think a real injustice was that we started using terms like functional electrical stimulation, you know, because it gave the idea that, oh, well, if it's not functional, then it's not needed or useful. And I always use that as an example because what we lost is when you drive a muscle electrically, you're stimulating the nerve, not the muscle. And so the muscle sees an impulse just like it was coming from our own brain. So everything after that muscle gets turned on is identical to what would happen if I was volitionally activating that muscle. So, you know, what, what we've lost sight of is, oh, well, I mean, everybody said, well, we would use e-stim purely for walking or function or something like that, when the reality is it's, it's like inducing activity. And um, so that's where I really see where it, it had merit. First of all, to discover that this conversion occurs because the animal work didn't say that. The animal work said it never loses 
its ability to fatigue. And I thought, gosh, what a gold mine. We could drive that muscle and it could sustain activity forever. And then when I realized, oh my gosh, this is not what's happening in humans, their muscle is becoming fast, glycolytic, losing all their mitochondria and becoming insulin resistant. And then that, of course, explains why hyperinsulinemia and diabetes is so rampant in people with spinal cord injury. So those are some of the early applications. You know, maybe we need to think about getting people on a course to preserve health of all tissues, even those tissues that have, they're not able to volitionally activate me. Does it matter which muscles you activate? I mean, postural um, muscles or slow, slow twitch or fast twitch or? Yeah. So good question. You know, by the time one year goes, all muscles look identical in people with spinal cord injury. So they regress to a mean, which means they all become fast. So any of your slowest muscles, like the soleus muscle, which is a postural muscle, that becomes 100% fast glycolytic. So they no longer have variation in their skeletal muscles. So, but your question is really good because the more muscle you can drive, the greater the effect could be on metabolism or taking up glucose after a meal. We always tell um, those of us who can move, well, after, you know, after you eat a meal, don't lay down, you know, go for a walk, do something after a meal. And that makes perfect sense because you need less insulin because if your muscles working, it draws in the glucose in the absence of insulin. So you reduce your need for insulin. Well, individuals with spinal cord injury, what a wonderful opportunity, if nothing else, to knock down their insulin peak after they eat a meal by just activating their musculature in, in a pretty straightforward, simplified way without high-tech equipment, just turning on the muscle, just like somebody fidgeting would do, you know, where you're, you're in some level of constant movement. Um, so yeah, it, but but the more muscle that one would drive, the better, because again, that would be like taking a walk, and so rather than just activating the calf muscle or the, you know the quadriceps, hamstrings, but it doesn't have to be in a way that generates a high force. It can be done in a way that drives it, um, you know, at a low force level. Um, but recruits most of the muscle. And you can do that by stimulating it at a very low frequency. So would you recommend that someone have electrodes on the quads or the soleus uh, turn on after every meal for a certain amount of time? Yeah, so um, I've got a paper that is, um, coming out very soon on that exact thing where we we measured their insulin spike and it's it's about you know 40% reduced if they activate the muscle starting 15 minutes after eating a meal or having a glucose drink or something like that 
for many of them, because of their bowel programs, they don't, they're eating, have, often they don't eat a lot, but they will take a Mountain Dew and drink it and not a diet Mountain Dew. And that's when their insulin goes up sky high. It just goes to some incredible levels. So um, while I'm not prepared to say today that the randomized controlled trial has been completed to actually then make it um, uh, a supported endeavor, I think the, the studies are accumulating that are pointing in the direction that, yeah, that, that might not be a a bad approach to try to improve overall health over a lifetime. How far out are those patients from their injury? So um, those individuals have already converted. So they're glycolytic. So even though the muscle's glycolytic, if you activate it at a low frequency for 45 minutes afterwards, you will draw in glucose. Probably the best kept secret in physical therapy. <laughs> I'm just amazed because it's, um, you know, it, it's such a powerful physiological thing. And we teach it to medical students all the time, but they never look at it as meaningful from an exercise standpoint. But by and large, um, if, you, if you contract the muscle, it opens the door to glucose in a pathway that does not use the insulin pathway. Hmm. So you have two ways to get glucose into skeletal muscle. One is insulin attaches to the cell surface, opens the door, GLUT4 transport, and moves glucose into a muscle. The other way is contract the muscle. And when it starts contracting, if you build up, AMP, it's essentially the byproduct of ATP, right? So if you're burning energy at a certain level, all of a sudden AMP signals, hey, open the door to glucose and you don't need to use insulin. So if somebody eats a meal and they sit, they're using all glucose or all insulin to get the glucose out of the blood. And what happens is you bathe that tissue with insulin enough times and all of a sudden those receptors start to get a little resistant. Mm -hmm. And over time, you need more and more and more to dampen that by having activity. Then you don't rely or lean so heavily on the pancreas to provide that insulin to, to uh, get the glucose, if you will, out of the bloodstream. So, board um, injury, they're perfect for this because they don't have a choice. They may, especially an individual with quadriplegia who only has, you know, 15% of their muscle mass, you know, lower level paraplegics can do upper extremity types of cycling and things like that, which is really uh, a wonderful approach. But the people up around C6, there's just not enough muscle mass. So to drive that electrically opens the door to that, um, that approach. So during your lecture uh, at the Anne Shumway Cook uh, presentation in 2021, you talked about deprivation of sensory input of, I believe, skeletal muscle sensory input 
that produces changes of cognition and metabolism. Um, could you explain what sensory input you're referring to? And is this tactile or the muscle sensation of contraction or proprioceptive or how, how could you explain that comment? Yeah, so, you know, what we always think about is when we, when we activate muscle, um, because we see it move, we never think about what we're putting into the spinal cord. And if they have a spinal cord injury, it's not getting up to the brain. But if skeletal muscle is an organ, which it is, when it's activated, it produces, it's, it's, think of it like a master gland of the body. So skeletal muscle, as it contracts, it produces substances called myokines, and they're released into the bloodstream. And if they get into the bloodstream, they're very small. Things like arisen is one of them. It can cross the blood-brain barrier and influence the hippocampus of the brain. And lo and behold, that's the link that we've now discovered between exercise, cognitive function, dementia, mild cognitive impairment with aging and so forth. We always thought exercise was increasing blood flow. And that's true. And that's beneficial, right? You can affect the blood brain barrier by, you know, having pressure increases each day. Increasing your blood pressure through exercise is a good thing. But it's probably more about what muscle is putting into the bloodstream that then is crossing the blood-brain barrier and influencing various parts of the brain, including the hippocampus. And so there's some very nice work, you know, tracing these uh, substances that are getting released. And I mean, if you think about it, we're in a, a whole new world because um, what, what gets released from muscle and you think of it as a secretion into the bloodstream um, are things like microRNA. I mean, think of it like a little virus, but it's a, a good virus. It, it's one that can cross into the nervous system and turn on receptors. You know, we have viruses and we've gotten vaccines and so forth that are, are a form of RNA that's distributed, that does things. That's exactly what our human body does when we're doing things that are good for it. And so muscle contraction um, in the lecture, when I talked about how muscle contraction yeah, there's sensory input going via the nerves, and that can set up a whole new set of communications. We remodel the spinal cord below the level of the injury. There's no question about that. But even more importantly, muscle is an organ that releases these compounds into the bloodstream and therefore have the potential to influence a 16-year-old who, you know, 40, 50 years later, maybe doesn't develop mild cognitive or more severe dementia. And some of the early data and, and studies vary, but many, many suggest that people with um, spinal cord injury have a reduced um, cognitive function.
And I wonder if that is because they've had a lifetime of reduced activity, especially of skeletal muscle. So one of our hypotheses on a grant was, you know, can we influence that pathway? And that's what we published a, a paper showing that we could in, increase the activation of the gene that makes that substance, that arisen, that is released into the bloodstream by electrically exercising the muscle. That's a nice segue into the, the next question about epigenetics. So exercise can change genes, right? Um, what does that mean for physical therapy? Wow, that's a, I mean, you know, when I, when I, when I fell into, epi, and again, you know, you might say, geez, you did your, let's see, you did your PT in 81, you did your master's in 84, you did your PhD in 89. They didn't even have the human genome figured out, <laughs> you know. Um, but I, you know, one of the things um, that I, I did learn is that, um, you know, a card-carrying um, genetics specialist is only as good as the last time they were updated because things change so fast. Mm -hmm. And so, because somebody said to me, and I can remember my lab when I said, okay, folks, we're moving into the genome and we're going to put all our emphasis in, in, in doing this. And yeah, these analyses are really expensive, but they're coming down. And I mean, they looked at me like I was absolutely crazy. I mean, they said, we're going to what? We don't do genetics. But, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that world changes so fast that if you're into the literature and you're up to speed with what's happening and you learn the skills, you know, everybody has the lifelong learn or they're or they're out of it, you know? So um, when I ran across some of the early animal work in epigenetics, it was like a bell went off because epigenetics, you know, just says, you know, DNA alone may not just be your destiny. You know, in other words, we were always so locked in. Oh, you were genetically pre- uh, disposition to have this, this, this. Well, we're all predisposed to a lot of bad genes, but because of how we live, our lifestyle and so forth, we suppress a lot of them and we promote a lot of the ones that are uh, historically known to be associated with good health. So um, epigenetics is, is somewhat of a, a game changer because even somebody who has a predisposition and shows the phenotype. I mean, let's say somebody with spina bifida. If you take a client with spina bifida and that individual had great exercise throughout their life and good care and range and this and all the things that are still capable of influencing whether a bad gene is going to be fully expressed, versus an individual with spina bifida that doesn't get good care. So it, 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 a lot of people say, oh, epigenetics, it only affects those of us 
who are healthy and then we're dead. No, I mean, it really emphasizes in PT that those who were dealt a bad hand and it's in their, they're showing it, right? Their phenotype is, is showing that. It's even more important for them to maximally influence the tagging of their gene pool. Because in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you can clearly see the difference. And when I looked at the first twin study, identical twins, where one twin was active their whole life, and the other twin was never active, didn't eat well, this or that, and then they both hit 60, and then they were both inactive from 60 to 80. The one who had invested was epigenetically tagged. So even though it's 60, they had very similar genetics and they both stopped all activity levels. Mm. The one at 80 versus the one that lived to 69 um, was very, very different. And so um, in PT, I mean, that's what we do. We, we try to influence behavior. I mean, what a phenomenal concept because what epigenetics is, is it's about behavior manipulating genes, exercise, diet, sleep, um, socioeconomics. Um, something to really be aware of is, you know, your um, stress levels. I mean, um, if you uh, if you think about it, the social determinants of health are now intermingling with biology in ways where they were always historically kept separate. So when I learned about the social determinants of health, I was told, you know, 30% ethics and the rest social determinants of health and not thought to be intertwined with genetics. But in fact, the social determinants of health determine your genetics. Mm -hmm. And so they're one and the same. It's very difficult to, to tease them out. Um, we biologically mark our social stresses. And now we've tracked the genes and in that uh, in the paper that was just published in January, I did a special issue on epigenetics and uh, precision PT. And I got a, a guy to write a paper who has done the work where, you know, the primate work, where if you take primates that are in a lower social class <clears throat> and they're in the lower pecking order and you look at their genetic expression, and it's very different than the than the higher class. But if you take that group and put them in and make that group the highest class, so then their genetics change to what the higher class is showing. So showing that biologically embedding traits is you know it's everything we we do, right? And and then I think the most remarkable piece how epigenetics relates to PT is um, it can be passed on so that epigenetic change where we used to think Lamarck's free. If you adapt 
effect in your lifetime. It doesn't affect your offspring. Now we now have the pathways for how um, the gametes are influenced. And, you know, we know everything's talking to everything in the body. So when you tag something, that can be communicated and that then can be transferred to other generations. And so, and that includes disease processes, diabetes is intergenerational, but we know it can be epigenetically prevented and we know it can be epigenetically promoted with, you know, behaviors. So, yeah, don't get me started on epigenetics. <laughs> <laughs> we, I wish we had more time to go into it because I'd love to yeah. hear more about it. I guess I just wonder outside of it being just a fascinating thing to know more about as a PT, like what does that look like in the clinic or if you're in the hospital or if you're in home health, like does it look like you could pull out a genome, genome testing kit one day and be able to assess whether someone's really set up for failure for a certain you know, metabolic disease or something like that? You just kind of think about in the future what, what it actually means for our profession since we've got all this great information coming out. Yeah. So what we would need to do, and, and I think definitely someday we will have, um, you know, it's called methylation studies. We do them now already so we can measure the epigenetics and the epigenome. But what's interesting is, I mean, your question is really good because in the future, yeah, I think we're going to help identify um, what is ideal for one person that might not be ideal for another person. And that's called precision. If it's precision medicine, if somebody has cancer, they're now looking at the genetics of it and seeing what, what kind of a treatment would be most effective. And it turns out, um, I do think that uh, we're on the verge of being able to, to feed that information back. But I think the biggest power of epigenetics for physical therapists, and it's a very practical one, is, and I've used it in the clinic, and I think if physical therapists can get their hands around it and not be afraid of it, it's in changing behaviors. Like if you think about it on the surface, epigenetics is very complicated. But there's a nice study that's been completed by a population health epidemiologist who's also into genetics. And she said, patients who can understand just the general principles of their lifestyle actually being an investment in not only their future, but also their children's future, is a whole different way to change behavior that hasn't been utilized. If you look in the clinic and you say, I, I used to walk through the clinic and ask PTs in, in our facility, what percentage of your patients do what you recommend? Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I'd say 30%. So, I mean, if, if in medicine, if only 20% or 30% are do are taking the medicine and you can't expect more to, to get better from the medicine we have to do is because it's a behavioral field rehab by definition is 
if we can impact behaviors, and I can tell you the people with spinal cord injury that I've worked with, when I explain, here's the reason that we're going to, to drive this musculature. If we can tag, now know we tag gene that upregulates, um, can you hear me okay? Coming in and out, but yes. We now know we can upregulate a variable gene with this stem that increases mitochondria. If we can do that, and then you have to go in the hospital for a while and they're tagged, you won't lose them as fast. Or think about the client who is going to go into a surgery and we get them tagged with a little memory. That's what epigenetics is. When it upregulates something, it means when you take away the exercise for a little bit, they don't lose it. If you've ever seen gymnasts who started very long, young training, exercising, they were hypertrophied, watch how quickly they can get it back when they're in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. It just comes back. And that's that epigenetic text. So it's, um, I, think, I think we sometimes think um, complicated things can't be, the patient won't understand it. Mm. But if we reduce it down to very um, straightforward concepts, then I think that could have an impact on PT today. When I hear about your the monkey study or primate study about class, and I think about the clients that I see, I'm in an acute rehab unit, that have very poor health literacy, and I think about the role of therapy in terms of impacting their health, not just their function. Uh, this is really powerful in terms of addressing health among all social classes and progression of health literacy for not, like you said, not only them, but their potential children. Uh, I think that is really amazing to think about our role across the lifespan in terms of promoting health. Yes, and, and um, you know, it, it raises another point. We've got a project just starting, but now we can, we can very nicely calculate somebody's age. Skeletal muscle is the best tissue out of all tissues to get the biological age of somebody versus their chronological age. And that we can do right now. So if you think about it, um, if you're treating a client who's 50, and because you know they're 50, you're saying, okay, I'm going to dose this way. But their muscle biologically is 80. Mm. You're not dosing correctly. Or if you flip it the other way, you have a 60-year-old whose skeletal muscle is biologically 35, then you're underdosing that client. And, and we do know that um, the class can influence the biological age of skeletal muscle. And so, you know, it comes back to can we be more precise rather than I did this with my last 50 year old, so I'll do this with with this one, you know, at the level of, of the muscle. And we're very close to being able to, 
to biologically age skeletal muscle as a as a biomarker um, that you know it's not going to be next year but that's the type of thing that it in nothing if nothing else as PTs are learning today and in our academic program we teach you know you've got to dig down to try to figure out the biological age of who you're treating because you know there's a lot of variation um, just as there is a lot of um, social inequities and so forth that we have to try to get our hands around. My mind is blown, Britta. <laughs> Thank God we're going to edit this podcast right now, but I just had to say that. Like, this is blowing my flipping mind. This is crazy. Oh my gosh. And I thought my mind it was is... blown when you were talking about how your study completely was separate from the findings of, of muscle fatigability from the one in the 80s. I was like, whoa! And now I'm just like, chronological versus biological. This is so... So, like, how then... How then can we assess patients' biological versus chronological age currently? So I, I think, I think PTs um, are phenomenally prepared to do this all the time, right? I mean, we can, um, if we look, if we know that the oxidative potential of muscle or oxidative potential of the whole system is really important, then we can, uh, we can do six minute walk tests. We can do um, repetitive um, activation of the, the musculature, whether it's on an isokinetic device or something else, or just um, cycling, or you know, I mean, getting that assessment. How what what can they hold their heart rate at to sustain a workload for ten minutes, fifteen minutes, twenty minutes, thirty minutes, and then um, you know, actually looking at their Clearly, their um, anthropometrics, like how much percent body fat, lean mass, um, I think all those things, what we're going to end up finding is all of those things that we do, whether it's, um, it's just we have to make sure we, we put people to that test, right? So if somebody comes in with an orthopedic low back problem, we still need to assess their overall health for sustaining activity because that's their biological age. Whereas if we just get in and start, you know, pushing and pulling in the lumbar spine, that's great for the pain relief, but how, how old are they from a physical capacity standpoint? Um, and the same thing with an individual with spinal cord injury, how far can they wheel? Can we put them to that test? Um, how much activity, remember moderate to vigorous activity, you know, I've done that in ICU with a C5 quadriplegic. So I want you, you know, when his arms were out, I want you turning these and giving maximal effort towards moderate to vigorously. And, and he was fatigued. I mean, just trying to do it or trying to turn something on the central fatigue. So 
you know, I think there are, are ways that we're really good at, at getting at that. We know things like gait, ambulation are great biomarkers for um, aging, right? Once somebody loses the ability to walk a distance, watch all the chronic conditions set in, right? So, um, and then, you know, we teach to, to really, if, if you wanna test oxidative capability of any muscle, just have it do a one on, two off. That's testing the mitochondria. And a lot of times that gets confusing, but that just means you're on for one second, you're off for two seconds. On for one second, off for two seconds. On for one, off for two. That's purely testing the oxidative ability. If you do it shorter than that, then you're going to cause fatigue by non-oxidative. You're gonna build lactate and you're gonna stop because you're, it, it hurts. <laughs> but if you really wanna know the oxidative capability of a client, you can test the major muscle groups on an endurance test, test their systemic endurance. How long can they sustain an activity then what's their maximal heart rate? And all those things I think will feed and support the, the genetic biological age. So we've spent a lot of time on muscle, but I gotta tell you, I wanna talk about bone for a second. Okay. So in limb loading and bone health, uh, so when you're calculating stress of the tissues, are you also calculating bone stress at the same time? Uh, does, does standing or exercising spinal cord injuries impact the bone mineral density? Yeah, and um, you know, that, that's another area that, that um, you know, I was intrigued with because when I got into that literature, it was stated that they have neurogenic osteoporosis. I said, okay, what is neurogenic osteoporosis? How is that different than postmenopausal osteoporosis or um, diabetics who have osteoporosis and so forth? Anyway, um, it turns out that if you stand somebody with a spinal cord injury, and it was after I took biomechanics that I, I ran some analyses and if you stand an individual with spinal cord injury and prop up his knees and put a belt around his waist and friction of the floor, you can stand somebody passively, but they're not seeing any load. The load on bone comes purely from muscle. And that's true for us. I mean, you know, I mean, if somebody just propped us up and we didn't contract the muscle, our bone would lose density like crazy, okay? Because that would be 40% of my body weight. 40% of body weight, I did the math one time. I mean, osteoblasts don't even know it exists, 40%. But if we contract, a if we stand, like if you think about it, if we stand on one leg, our gluteus medius is active, that's compressing the femoral head. We're getting two, three times body weight. 
So when you get up to 1.5 to three times body weight, then you're turning on osteoblasts to lay down bone. And I think the unique thing that we did in spinal cord injury was we were the first that they, they did a study where they stood people and said, that doesn't work. It's neurogenic. It's not mechanical. And we went back and said, well, wait a minute, let's see. So then we stood them, activated the quadriceps while they were standing, calculated the stress we were putting in, and we targeted 1.5 times body weight. And we did this with acutes. So they had good bone to start, and they didn't lose their bone density. So we maintain 36% of the bone in people with spinal cord injury if you superimpose the muscle force on top of the standing. So yeah, muscle, muscle talks to bone. I mean, remember, it's overlying the bone. So if muscle can release things that go to the brain, Muscle can release substances that certainly turn on receptors within the bone. And so, um, so not only is it mechanical, but there's definitely crosstalk between skeletal muscle and the skeletal system. And so that's another reason why turning on muscle is, is a good thing. So on our paraplegics, do we need to have a weighted backpack for them when they work on sitting? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, certainly they could, but what what's really interesting in paraplegics, their lumbar spine doesn't lose, it's their hips. Mm. So, um, and that's what what really confirmed the principle. And that's because if you look at the um the vibration frequency in a wheelchair, that's really loading the spine and they don't have any muscle support. So they don't have any um, intra-abdominal pressure. So the, the vertebral bodies are seeing a lot of load if they're you know wheeling and things like that. And when I did my first bone scans in these folks, I was like, why is the lumbar spine? It's below the level of the lesion. If it's neurogenic, it should all have lost bone. But instead, the lumbar spine is good because when they're sitting, that's seeing a load. But then it's the legs, the hips, and you know the, the distal femur and proximal tibia that just gets washed out completely. And in those cases, standing and activating muscle, you, you know, you, your recommendation of putting a backpack on, like let's say you stood them and put a load on, the problem is it, it still is not going to come close to muscle because muscle works at such a mechanical disadvantage. You know, muscle has a moment arm that's a centimeter that has to offset torques when you're standing that are a foot long. So, um, so it would be hard to do it with loading them it'd be easier to do it if they can activate their muscle or another alternative and we've published some work and this is vibration you can induce vibration into the lower extremities when they're standing and that's another way to mm -hmm. stress the bone 
What about electrical stimulation? And if so, are there parameters or suggested guidelines to follow um, for using eSTEM? Yeah, so um, we've published several papers where we stand them and then we stem to get the muscle force. And then we modeled what the load was. And we did 1.5 times body weight when the muscle was on. Um, I would not recommend doing that in somebody who's chronically paralyzed. We only did that in people that we started within three weeks after their injury. So in other words, we were starting with good bone and we mm -hmm. could prevent it from being lost. I've not seen any compelling studies when the bone is 40% gone, that it's, it's restored it to a level that it's improved the strength of the bone. So, you know, and, and some studies will report, well, we had a 70% increase or something, but, you know, a little increase of nothing is a lot, mm. right? If you have, if you, if you have very little bone and you double it, but it doesn't matter because there's so little there to start, it's, it's not a lot. And another way to look at it is, you know, your quadricep is made up of a thousand uh, fibers or motor units. If you had one fiber working in your quadriceps, you can't do anything with it. Okay. If you double, if you had a hundred percent increase and got two, you still can't do anything with it. And so when, when bone is so far gone and even with postmenopausal osteoporosis, what, what all the, you know, interventions do is they try to reduce the loss. None of them have really successfully put it back on. You know what I mean? So in spinal cord injury, the way to keep bone in bone is to start when the bone is still good. And that comes back to the first question. How would this translate to be thinking tissues even though they're not going to be walking or, you know, going to be doing certain things? So... Mm -hmm. The fact that we can, um, the fact that we can do this now, um, just means we have to, you know, we have to make sure we don't get ourselves in trouble and do it in people who are severely osteoporotic, because putting those loads on will fracture the bone. And so, in all of our papers, we really put out there, look. We've only ever done this. I, I would be so nervous putting those kinds of load in people who are chronically paralyzed. Now, chronic paralysis, we can put low loads, which is low frequency stimulation, low load, but we recruit the whole muscle. So you can recruit the whole muscle if you turn up the intensity. If you spread out the frequency, you never fuse the muscle. And so if the muscle isn't fused, you keep the force down, but you can get all the good things out of that muscle at a lower force. Mm -hmm. So, And for those patients 
whether it's acute or chronic, they have to have some sort of activation. You can't just slap an e-stim on someone and have that be the muscle. Or you're saying that can act as the muscle that improves the bone. Okay. Yeah. Everything we've done has been in people who are clinically complete. We don't detect anything. What they can't have is a conus medullaris lesion, right? In other words, they have to have peripheral nerves, mm. you know. So the lesion, like a cervical lesion, a thoracic lesion, as long as they have their peripheral nerves, then we can activate the muscle. If it's a conus lesion, then it's it's a flaccid paralysis. They never develop any spasms, and that connection is lost. Mm. How do you feel about the literature that's come out saying that there's really no such thing as a complete injury? I'm just yeah. curious. I've always wanted to ask like a true spinal cord physical therapist what they think about that literature because it's very um, thought-provoking. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, think it, it, I think it can be interesting from a scientific perspective. My, my concern is the people who have promoted that, um, to my knowledge, when that was first promoted, it was promoted by people who were not clinicians mm. to help them with their rationale for their grants to get funding because they were getting criticized by saying, um, you know, well, you know, this, you know, how many of these people are actually incomplete and so forth so they said well everybody's incomplete nobody has a complete lesion you know on the other hand you know i've treated 2000 people with spinal cord injury from day one all the way out and in my hands you know i don't think i i mean if the appropriate neurological assessment is done then you know that a clinically complete person, the probability they're going to stay clinically complete forever is very good. But it takes a lot of careful early evaluation, including anal reflex, bulbocavernosis reflex. You've got to know when those return and do a real thorough exam. But in, in my practice, um, you know, we could we could debate. Well, there's there's still a strand getting through the spinal cord, or there's one axon connecting, um, and that's great. I always worked under the premise: if I can get something moving, I'm going for it. I'm going for it with a vengeance. Um, but in the meantime, I've got to get them going so they don't get secondary problems. Mm. So. Um, but if, if, you know, I, I think it, the debate is, is in favor of those who are interested in, um, regenerating walking pathways. Um, but in the end, we have a lot of people who don't regenerate those walking pathways and are suffering from diabetes osteoporosis and all the other secondary mm. problems. So, you know, I think, I think there's um, life for both of those 
philosophies, but you have to be willing to say, you know, you, you can't take somebody who's clinically, chronically complete and just keep going after something that isn't robust enough. Mm. So if there's one axon, just like if I have one, one motor unit and I can create a, a little fasciculation in my muscle and I can only get, even if I can get five of them, in the end, it's not going to get me where I, where I need to go for my best health. Mm. Now, if somebody's incomplete, if I find something, even on the sensory side that's incomplete, you know, I go after that. And it just, because all that says is at the time of the injury, this spinal cord wasn't as damaged as this other one that I'm not getting any measurement of anything getting through. And, um, you know, and then you, you know, you follow them very, very closely and you come to the determination that, you know, I mean, I've had many people walk out of a university hospital that came in with a complete paralysis, but they, they were uh, complete before many of the reflexes returned. And that was very prognostic. So um, I think it's a great question though, because, and, and it often, I, I don't mind people uh, getting to that conclusion. I guess biggest concern is if they never hands on a patient or never saw a patient clinic and they've only done search mm. with people with spinal cord injury and may not even many of them are not pts then it seems a little bit more self-serving to their research rather than them really knowing what those numbers are and i appreciate your question because you've you've raised a good um healthy approach to it like i wonder what it is because mm -hmm. we really don't know and but i think the proof is in the phenotype what we end up seeing and what we need to then transition to for what's best for their health mm -hmm. if we keep them on a on a dream that they're going to regain and walk and that's not, and that's at the detriment of their health, then I, you know, I think that's not good too. Yeah. I like that you brought that up, that it's almost like, even if we were to find that there is no such thing as a complete injury, that in the end, everyone is incomplete, which is kind of like this existential question. You're like, is anyone really complete? Yeah. Then it, it almost doesn't even it doesn't matter because we still need to put our eggs in the basket of, we need to talk about health over function. And I do find, so the reason I ask is because we're doing a neuromodulation study here at Duke and mm -hmm. we're, they're all about like, there's no such thing as a complete injury. And we're going to be able to put these, um, uh, these spinal cord stimulators in. And, and we've had some patients regain some walking function, but it then, brings up the other questions like what does the lifestyle of this person look like if you could have them walk it's not going to change the fact that they have very poor health literacy or their socioeconomic status is very um weighs heavily on their dna and you know they're already diabetic they have black feet you know it's just all the neuropathy and all that kind of stuff so it's 
it's almost like in the end it's a rhetorical question, but it's still kind of just feels like that's all science is doing, right? Is trying to just take whatever we think we know and then try to disprove it. And I was just yeah curious. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's really a good point because, um, you know, we, I think we have to be honest with it and I'm, I'm for, um, you know, if we can upregulate circuitry that allows walking, I'm all for it, you know, and I'm all for the science, but, you know, NIH had a, I was a part of an NIH program two years ago, and it was called Decade for Disruption in Spinal Cord Injury Care. And they had this big, uh, we, we published a paper out of it, but we, they brought in people who were involved with regeneration and they had me present and, and others, but they had the public come. The public who are spinal cord injured in wheelchairs and there were incompletes, completes, there are probably 70 people there who, who are living with spinal cord injury. And invariably, the consensus was, I spent too much time trying to walk and I lost my health. They, they, want, to, they want to live. And they're okay living in a chair if that's their means of mobilization. But it was so interesting to see them come together and really take offense to to some of the one of they got up and they said um, to one of the scientists that were involved with the regeneration. They said, throughout your talk, you used the word breakthrough. Break breakthrough knowledge or breakthrough findings or you know so many times do you know how many times we've heard that mm. from science and what we just want is to be healthy and um, so even if we go down the road of trying to turn on circuits we got to know when to put it in perspective and segue to what's in the best interest of the client. Mm. And like I said, a lot of the research um, was not done on the backs of people that worked with clients for many years, um, but rather, you know, sees something that's sensationalistic. And it's easy then to say, well, this has got to be right. Mm. And so anyway, Sorry, I went on too long on that, but. Well, let's switch for a minute. So you have some fabulous work and probably spend a lot of time uh, doing your research, but what do you do for fun? So um, I've always, so I actually um, have an acreage and I'm not originally from the Midwest. I'm from the East Coast. So I'm a a transplant, if you will, to the Midwest. And um, so I have an acreage and I've planted a lot of trees in my life. Okay. Probably more than I should have, but <laughs> 30 some years ago, I planted 3000 trees and um, I've had the opportunity to see them 
come to fruition. It's actually easier raiding, uh, raising trees than it is children. I did discover that. Um, and I had three, three children and um, my wife and I have an acreage here. So uh, that's always kept me busy. So we do a lot of um, growing of vegetables and stuff like that. But I also have <clears throat> over 2000 pine trees. And so um, I planted those when it was open acreage and now it's a, a you know, a nice forest. I've always been real um, active in things and I, I probably, you know, my daughter who's now a, a dermatologist, she, um, she played sports in high school and college and, you know, I'm happy to say I never missed a game, you know, when she was in college. I mean, Texas, Florida, San Diego, you know, and I tell my faculty the same thing, you know, I mean, that time goes so fast, don't lose it. So, um, you know, so I, I actually feel like I would be further along if I didn't take the time, but I don't, you know, I actually believe the other things that I do helps me think, at least think straight. <laughs> um, you know, I could be out working on the acreage or running a chainsaw or something like that, but I'm usually come away with an idea or something somewhere. And then the last thing is um, I do like to, to read and I also like to um, exercise surprise surprise so I've done a lot of triathlons in my time I I usually bike about 3,000 outdoor miles a year and I hope to be able to try to sustain that um, as I'm getting older and older it's getting harder and harder but I did find that you know I always I, I always used to think it wasn't about the bike it was about the engines, you know, the muscle, but now I'm realizing that I can buy speed. Hmm. So uh, I'm starting to get bikes that are <laughs> much more expensive, almost the price of a car, <laughs> but they're much lighter and they're carbon and they're this. And I, I also have a bike that fits into a suitcase that I've sent all over the world. And every place I go, even CSM, I send it um, and it breaks apart and then I have to build it up in the room. But um, so that lets me uh, get that work. I'm not doing triathlons anymore, but I still run, but not as far and as fast. So, um, but raise three children who are um, ones in... Uh, at University of Wisconsin. She's a dermatologist. Um, Connor is the cybersecurity expert in Miami. And my third son is a vice president of a bank. So they're, um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think those are pretty much the things that I do. I like to write. What kind of bike do you have, Dr. Shields? Um, I have a, um, it, it's, uh, specialized. 
and it's I hate to say it, it's it's a fourteen thousand dollar bike. Mm. I paid ten thousand for it. Oh. <laughs> um, so it's uh, it's a uh, the highest end road bike that Specialized makes, mm-hmm. and um, I I mean it was the first bike, new bike that I ever bought. So I always felt it wasn't about the bike, but now I think it's about the bike. So that's what I have to do to keep up with the young people today. I have to get better equipment. So, Are you a Campagnolo guy or do you have Shimano? Uh, camp on one bike. Um. And then um, I have the other one, the higher one than Shimano. The, the oh drawn a blank on the name it'll come to me but anyway there's a there's in 2014 when i bought this bike it had the highest highest end uh system on it it's it's one above shimano is it sram shram no 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 it's above that it's um gosh i'm drawing a blank on it um well, I'll give you a distraction. Okay. What, what what type of pine trees? I'm from Georgia, so you know, oh, pine, okay. pine's important here. Yeah, so I um, I planted white pine. Mm-hmm. And the white pine, they're the ones that they have the long needles, but they're soft. And then what I did is I planted them in strips, five feet apart, but then every three feet which is too close, um, I planted them. So for years I did Christmas trees, so I could thin them. So every year when a pine tree grows, you know, it sends out its swirl. And then in June, you have to cut it back, you prune it. And then that's how you make a nice full Christmas tree, you know? So, um, so I did that for years and sold Christmas trees just so I could uh, thin them because I had to thin them out of um, the forest. But um, yeah, and then you know, and then we had it. Uh, we did not have the attrition that we expected, so they all lived. And so eventually, I had to. I've probably up uh, oh over five hundred that either died or something along the way. Um, in fact, last weekend I was out there, you know, cleaning the forest. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Excellent. Well, I tell you what, the, this interview has been fascinating. You've kept Dana and I on the edge of our seats and, uh, as Dana says, mind blown. So I really appreciate you taking the time and energy to meet with us tonight and look forward to seeing you at CSM again in the future. Yes, me as, as well. I enjoyed talking with you. You're a very good audience. You're very attentive. Thank you. <laughs> and we asked lots of questions. <laughs> yeah, good questions. And I actually enjoyed it. So thank you very much. You're welcome. And have a great evening. You too. Bye. Bye.